0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: We do a lot of things in this country really well. There's a lot about Canada as we move up to Canada Day, 150th birthday. There's a lot of things that I think we can be exceedingly, exceedingly proud of. Most things, in fact. You know where we really fall short, though, seemingly too often? Well, let me tell you the story, and then you can figure out where I'm going with this. You may have read this story earlier this week. Two days ago, in fact, it came out. Does the name Luca Magnata ring any bells with you? Luca Magnata, you may recall. We try to forget people like this. Luca Magnata was that—I'm trying to think of the right word, and I'll just get myself in trouble. He was that guy who— Slaughtered another person on video camera and beheaded him and did it with a video camera rolling and then those images were put up on the what's known as the dark web, the the internet that you don't know how to get to. I don't know how to get to. But he was a model and he was a apparently a part time sex worker and on and on on. But anyway, he's he murdered and decapitated and it was just a horrendous it was a student that he did it to and it was a horrible horrendous disgusting unbelievably repulsive evil disturbed bent whatever you want to call it act of horribleness well he's back in the news you want to know why because he's in prison he got 25 years to life no chance of parole for at least 25 years he's getting married guess to who to another murderer who's in prison. How do we allow this in our, honestly, in our criminal justice system, how do we allow this stuff to happen in Canada? How do we even allow people who have done the kinds of things that he did? It was just a few weeks ago we were chatting about Carla Hamolka volunteering at her children's school. How do we allow these things in our country How do we allow these things to happen in our jails? Surely it's not cruel and unusual punishment to say if you're put away for 25 years for something that was cruel and unusual, I always find it ironic that we are not supposed to do anything that is cruel and unusual to those who are the most cruel and the most unusual. But how is it that the people, someone like this who has done something so disgusting, so against society's norms and mores and acceptances, That we are supposed to allow him to have a life that is seemingly as normal as possible. We have to treat them perfectly fine. We have to give them proper room and board and comfortable surroundings. We can't allow them out into the general population lest someone might hurt them. He met this future husband. Because he was allowed access to the internet and was able to send out personal messages onto a dating website for inmates, if you can wrap your head around that one for a minute. How is it that we in this country allow this stuff or are okay with this stuff? And if we're not okay with it, how come our government continues to allow allow it to happen? And not just a government. We've had lots of different governments of lots of different parties and nothing gets changed. And I suppose that the answer to this is if they tried to change it, that lawyers would just jump up uh, and speak on behalf of their clients who are in prison and say, well, you can't do this because this is no longer allowed. This to me is the absolute picture of what is wrong in a system where you can have someone who did what he did and he is given the rights and the privileges and the opportunities to marry somebody now there's not going to be any conjugal visits there's not going to be any contact they've pointed this out already all right so that's not what this is about and the reality is probably you would guess that probably I would hope, anyway, that when 25 years rolls around, Luca Magnata is still not just going to be free. They're not going to throw open the gates and just let him walk out. I would hope. I mean, as crazy as our system is sometimes, I would hope it's not that ridiculous. I hope that when they say 25 to life for what he did, it is life. Anyway, let us go back, though, for a second. Because you now have, you have allowed, you are allowing in our system, in our jails, You are allowing a murderer to marry a murderer. You are allowing two people who are disturbed, who have severe problems, who are evil, you are allowing them to hook up. Well, what happens if in 25 years he does get out of prison and the other guys, I think, only got 19 years left or something you really want. It's bad enough having one person who's unhinged and has proven himself to be exceedingly dangerous and murderous. It's bad enough to have one person out in society. Now you're going to allow him to spend his time with someone else. The whole thing makes no sense to me. I don't understand how the criminal justice system works like this. I completely understand. You know, some people will say bleeding hearts. We should be, we talked about this the other day. We should be kind to those around us. We should not be doing evil things to other people. We should not be making life harder than it needs to be for those who are in our society. But once you've done something like Luca Magnata and once you have stepped over the the line, over the bridge that separates humanity and a responsible or an acceptable member of society from whatever's on that other side... I'm sorry. Those rights and responsibilities—not responsibilities. Those rights and opportunities should be gone. You should not be getting these things anymore. You shouldn't be on a computer. You shouldn't be having contact outside the jail with other people outside the jail. You shouldn't. I'm sorry if this is sounding cruel, but life should be hard for you if you're in jail, especially if you're in jail for the stuff for the reasons that he's in jail for. If you tell me that I'm being cruel or I'm being unreasonable, I'm sorry, I'll accept that because we are being way too kind to the people who have stepped so far beyond the bounds of civilization and society. I don't expect Paul Bernardo to be having access to other people outside. If he wants to write a letter so that the jailhouse, the the guards can proof it and make sure that it's acceptable, whatever else, but I don't need him having access to the Internet. As I'm concerned, what Paul Bernardo did, what Luca Magnotta did, is at a level where if they sit in their cell with a book or a magazine by themselves for 23 hours a day and you give them an hour a day to go outside and get some exercise, I don't know if this makes me cold-hearted, but I'm okay with that. I am completely okay with that. There, there is a point at which we're not talking about someone who, in a fit of peak, punched someone in the face. All right, we're not talking about someone who goes to jail for 30 days for some crime that was in a moment of passion and stupidity, or when they do something that is wrong, but, you know, relatively speaking, most people in society could say, yeah, you know, given the right circumstances, I, I, I could maybe do that. All right, we're not talking about that kind of thing. I'm not talking about sending, if you go to jail for break and enter, I'm not suggesting that you should be North Korean. We talked about that the other day, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about these are cases. These are the worst case scenarios. And not only are they the worst case scenarios, these are the worst case scenarios where the evidence is indisputable. You can't possibly have someone say that, well, this was just, you know, eyewitnesses who were lying or this was the, the evidence. These are there, are, there are films of these people committing Paul Bernardo, Luca Magnata. There are films, there is direct evidence of these people doing it. I don't even think they, they don't even dispute it. Paul Bernardo didn't dispute. Paul Bernardo didn't dispute that he was involved. He just argued about who actually did the killing, whether it was him or his wife. Luca Magnotta doesn't dispute, I don't believe, if I recall correctly, it's the circumstances around it. I just fail to understand how our system allows people like this to have the accesses that they do, that allows the people who do these things to... To have a life that they try to make normal. They shouldn't have a normal life. They've given up that normal life. And if you disagree with that concept and you disagree with an eye for an eye, many people do. There's a lot of people in this country that would disagree stre- stringently, strenuously with the concept of capital punishment. That's a discussion for another day. That's, that's a different topic. We're not into that one. But there's a lot of people who say, no, no, I'm not into an eye for an eye. Fine. But I also don't think that it is respectful or decent to the people who suffered these at the hands of these criminals, to the families, to the victims. It is not decent. It is not fair. It is not respectful for the person who did this, who took away their rights, took away their privileges, took away their life. To say, oh, but we have to treat them nicely. We have to treat them reasonably. No, we don't have to treat them nicely or reasonably. We have to keep them alive. That's the law. We have a law in this country that says we cannot commit capital punishment. That's okay. We have to keep them alive. And we can't do what is considered cruel and unusual. So we can't waterboard them or we can't torture them. That's fine. There's nothing in there that says they have to live a good comfortable life. Nothing. And I'm sorry if some people think that that's too harsh. But these people are beyond getting that chance. There are things that people will do that will be forgivable and that will be a moment again where you say I did something stupid in a mo- in a heat of the moment, in a moment of passion, I punched someone. I I got in my car and I drove drunk and I, oh boy, I knew I shouldn't have done it and I'll never do it again. I'm not defending these things. I'm just saying there's a difference between that and premeditated acts of atrocious evil that we are then supposed to treat these people as if they are just wayward sons who we need to keep very happy and, and rehabilitate. We need to rehabilitate them because... You know, chances are you'll never get out of prison. We're not really sure why we're rehabilitating you, but why do we, why do we give these people university educations in prison? Why do we give these people courses? When I hear these things about the stuff that is, we shouldn't be torturing them, but we shouldn't be coddling them either. What they did means they should be spending their time in jail and it should be tough. It should be tough. This should not be an okay place to be. I'd love to hear if you agree or disagree. I'm very interested in knowing because it's I have no doubt there are people out there saying, you know, what's the harm in allowing Luca Magnotta to get married? What's the harm in allowing people to take university courses in jail? What's the harm in having them live a comfortable life? Why, why, what's the problem with that? As long as they're away from society and no danger, I'd love to hear from you. Radley at 900 CHML.com. Send me a note. Are you okay with this? Are you okay with a guy who decapitated on video for his own disturbed, disgusting pleasure? committed a crime that even among murders and I I mean it's I find it hard to be categorizing the depravity of murders because you know murder is murder but even among murderers this would be one that would be high on the disgusting and the depraved scale we're supposed to be treating this guy okay that he can go get married that he can have access to online dating websites for other inmates that he can have a kind of relationship of whatever it is. We're okay with this. Our country's okay with this. We're not thinking that maybe we've tipped the pendulum too far and we've moved so far away from cruel and unusual punishment that we're now at a place where it's Kid gloves, almost. Yeah, you're locked up. Yeah, he's not getting those kind of freedoms. But, boy, it doesn't sound. It doesn't sound like his existence is all that horrible. To be. To be very honest with you, I've just got about a minute here. Let me bring in Karen. Karen, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Sorry, you're you right. Are you still there?
2: Yes, I'm here. Sorry,
1: your line is just breaking up. But yeah, go okay. ahead. You just got about I'm thirty gonna, seconds. I'm
2: sorry, can you hear me now? I
1: can. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Okay, I just wanted to comment on your uh your a uh, situation with Luca and Magnata. Yep. And it all also goes for Carla Homoka. That they get an um university education on the taxpayers' dollars. Yep. When my children had student loans.
1: How many people have you decapitated and murdered? Uh none. <laughs> You know, I, and I'm, I hate to be so sarcastic, but m- maybe if your kids need a good university education, there's the way to do it. I mean, I, it's a horrible thing to say, right? But what you're, get, how do they, you're right. How do they get free university education, and your kids are going to be strapped with all kinds of student loans they have to pay off?
2: It's absolutely disgusting. Like, I don't know what's wrong with our system. Like, they're in jail for a reason. There's, no, there's a reason for them being there. Um, they've done something terrible, and they should do the time. But why should the taxpayers' dollars pay for them to do a university
1: education? Karen, I I 100% agree with you. I I acknowledge and I'm not suggesting that they should be taken out into the public courtyard and beaten with a rattan cane every day. That's not what we're talking about. But I also don't think that privileges should be extended to them. They are there, as you say, for a reason. And that reason should count for something.
2: Yeah, so why are they given all the perks?
1: Great question, Karen. Thanks for the call.
2: Thank you.
1: It is, uh, I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. This is, this drives me nuts. And maybe it doesn't drive you nuts. Maybe again, maybe you're looking at this and I bet there are some of you who are out there saying, you know what, if we keep our inmates happy, they won't be trouble for the jail guards and then the jobs will be easier. We won't have riots and on and on and on. I'm sorry. When you did what you did to those people, Their families, the victims' families, the victims are gone. The victims' families deserve better than what this is. Imagine if you were the family of this person who was murdered by Luca Magnata, and you got to look at this and go, oh, he's getting married. How lovely for him, and my kid is six feet underground in pieces. Come on. Frank writes in, cruel, huh? What about the initial crime sufferers? That's exactly what I'm talking about, Frank. I agree wholeheartedly. Go read this story. If if you're feeling a need to kind of get yourself wound up and be a little angry, or as I say, maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you believe that this is the right and the compassionate, the Canadian way to handle murderers. Maybe you believe we need more of this with our criminals to keep them to try and get them back onto the right path. Maybe that's what you believe, but go read these stories. All the newspapers, the Star, the Globe, the Sun, everyone had uh, the spec. It was all, It was everywhere. Go read it and decide for yourself if, if you haven't been listening the whole time here. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I hope you read, either in the paper or online at the spec.com today, the piece by Joanna Frikadich. is the first in a three-part series With the headline, The Math Problem, Hamilton Students Failing to Make the Grade. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're an uncle, if you're an aunt, if you are a student, this affects you. Just half, this is the the subheadline. just half of grade six students in Hamilton are meeting the provincial standard in math. And the problem has been getting worse over the past decade. Why are children from all areas of the city doing so poorly? In the midst of this first part, the first piece of this three-part series is a quote. I wish I had the golden answer, said Ian Vanderberg, the director of the Center for Education in Mathematics and Computing at the University of Waterloo. We need to figure out why. Well, my next guest has been with us before. And the reason I keep bringing him back is because he is a voice of common sense on this. He is a voice who I think could probably answer that question, at least to some degree. Why is math not working for so many kids right now? Maybe it's because of what we're actually teaching in math and how we're teaching math. Robert Kregan is a professor at the University of Manitoba. He is also with the Western Initiative for Strengthening Math in Education. Dr. Cragen joins me now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. I don't get the sense every time we've talked in the past that when we hear words like bewildered and struggling and all this, I don't get the sense that you're bewildered about why math is struggling among kids these days.
0: Well, I've had to spend so much time thinking about it that uh, and, and looking at the results and uh, and uh, uh, talking and sometimes arguing with uh, <laughs> the, the people who are sort of in charge of running these things. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think I have some idea of what's going on. You know, my colleague uh, Dr. Anna stocky who uh, helped uh, fo- co-found this initiative, has written uh, a very hard-hitting CD Howe report a couple of years ago that is still available online, and uh, and it outlines three different areas that we feel uh, um, there are there are obvious. Uh, um, uh, policy initiatives that could be that could be made that would make a difference. Uh, we think, for one thing, that the way that teachers are encouraged to to uh, instruct their students could change a little bit. Um, we would like to see something like a, an 80-20 rule that they should spend about 80% of the time in the classroom uh, directly instructing students. Uh, which doesn't necessarily mean standing at the front and lecturing at them, but it means that the teacher is in charge of communicating information to the student rather than the student being responsible for generating their own knowledge. And that would make a difference uh, simply because there there are instructional theories in the world of education that suggest that the teachers should more just stand back and and guide the student and allow the student to, uh, to learn on their own, to direct their own learning. And... Uh, The research doesn't suggest that this is a good idea to do, at least for the the majority of instruction. When we're doing core instruction, when we're dealing with the primary topics being taught, particularly in the early years, and so some sort of a rule of thumb that would indicate to teachers that it is really their primary responsibility or their responsibility to be the primary instructor in the classroom to to. to help guide them, the, the, the research actually doesn't suggest that the best thing is to to use the old throw them in the deep end and let them learn how to swim on their own and just sort of shout at them from the from the sides. Um, it, it, the um, this uh, system that they call uh, some people call a discovery uh, learning. Uh, has been around for a very long time. It's like a 200-year-old theory that says that the student is sort of a natural learner. You should let them um, uh, sort of follow their own inclinations. So you give them guided um, uh, experiences in which they they can generate their own knowledge. It doesn't seem to be effective. There doesn't seem to be a lot of strong research really favoring that idea,
1: but if it's been around for so long, and I don't recall when I was in school, and that's, you know, a few years ago, but I, I suppose there was some of that in certain things, but not really in math. In math it was, here's how you do math, here's how you come to the answer, now follow this and you will get the answer and learn the foundations. It may have been when it was creative writing or something, I could see that, you know, what you're the discovery, but there are certain things that it's either right or it's wrong, isn't it?
0: Right. Well, when I I say it's been around for uh, a couple of hundred years, that doesn't mean that it's been predominant in education for a couple of hundred years. Uh, The the theories have been around since the Romantic era 200 years ago, and uh, there have been certain times where they have come to the fore, like anybody old enough to remember uh, new math in the 1950s and 1960s. That was a variation on the same ideas, Um, and and these arose out of the, the... sort of ancient ideas that come out of the, uh, the romantic era that, that, that uh, somehow civilization is bad and, the, and so the structure of the teacher as an authority figure at the front of the classroom telling the students what they should do is somehow unhealthy and, and unhelpful to the student's education and that they'll have much deeper understanding if they discover things on their own. This has been around for a long time. And, and, and it, uh, it did sort of rise to the top in the 50s and 60s. We saw the new, new math. That sort of failed, and eventually it, uh, it, it uh, was, was then subsumed by a later period of, uh, of more direct instruction. And we seem to be in a second wave of the same sort of thing. This is not the same as the 50s, 60s new math, but the underlying uh, motivation seems to be similar to the underlying philosophies.
1: Okay, so people, and again, you've been on here before, and you've done a great job with this every time, but so people who are new to this can understand when you the, the new new math, all right? So I'm a student now, and I'm in a grade six classroom. Maybe it's a grade three classroom when this one comes up, But and my instruction is that I have to learn how to multiply five times five. Now, once upon a time, at least when I was in grade three, probably when you were in grade three, maybe when a lot of people listening were in grade three, you learned that, with one of two ways. First of all, you learned your times tables anyway; you memorized them, so you just knew that stuff. But also, there was a way you learned to multiply. You still had to learn the basics. But now, what is the new math telling you that you should use to get that answer, rather than just memorizing your times table?
0: Well, it'd be hard to pin down exactly one thing that's happening, but I can say that there's a there's a tendency for uh, for teachers to be told. I'm not blaming the teachers on this, I'm sort of talking more about the, how they're being advised by, uh, say, the, the education schools or the pro- professional development. People will tell them that, you know, uh, you should let the students experiment and sort of come come to this by discovery on their own. Now, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with uh, learning as discovery. The student, you know, is given an experiment, they have a bunch of boxes or tiles or squares or or uh, Or rods sitting on their desk, and they play with the rods and they're asked to perform certain tasks with them, and they sort of uh, by experiencing this, they learn something there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a it's a highly inefficient way to learn um, sort of large amounts of information, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, sort of create this systematic methodology that we want in arithmetic where the students are able to do things with what educators call automaticity so they they do it without actually thinking in fact uh, many educators will will uh, um, will shrink from the idea of students doing something without thinking uh, there's there's a mantra that we often meet when we go go to the uh, to the high level meetings with uh, with people in our province so just, I i'm in manitoba And uh, they'll often say, you can't show the student how until they understand why. So the idea is the student is supposed to have understanding before they have any mechanical ability to do things, before they have any mechanical proficiency. So they're supposed to develop understanding in an environment where they have very awkward methods for actually performing tasks.
1: This, though, does this not in real life, when you go out into the working world, if I go to work at a factory, does this not fly in the face of how you're taught the rest of your life? When you walk into a factory to work, they don't say, okay, explore how to work around the open molten flame. They tell you, this is what you do, and then you can start learning some shortcuts or whatever else, and you can understand how it works. This seems opposite to most everything else that we would learn in our life.
0: Right. Well. uh to a greater and lesser degree, we sometimes see this dichotomy in, in the education world between understanding and, say, the, the basic technical skills that we want students to have. Now, our view is that there is no dichotomy between understanding and the, the mechanical skills. And in fact, it's probably best in most parts of mathematics for these to be taught together. And not for this this sequence that we keep hearing from these these uh, these uh, educationists <laughs> who say that that you must have understanding before you learn the mechanics. That, that that's really nonsense. That's not the way learning takes place.
1: Am I? Am I? Because of that, then am I? less intelligent and i mean the answer is probably by default yes but anyway am i less intelligent because i learned my times tables by memory and then could apply them as opposed to having figured them out through some sort of investigation
0: uh i certainly don't think so and what we often see is this attempt to um to teach understanding before there's actual knowledge before there's actual uh workable skill uh seems to be uh, um it seems to be counterproductive i I think students actually gain less understanding in this way than they do if they learn them together um, and And there doesn't seem to be any any sort of cognitive reason there's nothing nothing showing in the research that suggests that understanding is is better if the students do it without any mechanical proficiency. In fact, uh, I suspect the opposite is true. And we see, for example, there there's an extremely large study, the largest educational study in history that was performed back in the 70s. It was a 10-year study of tens of thousands of students across the U.S. And they they studied different uh, teaching methodologies in the classroom uh, in different locations. And there were some that focused on understanding. They, they, They weren't terribly worried about the students learning the basics. What they wanted was the students to understand what was going on and then they had another group of, of methods that were based on, you learn the basics really well, and, and they, they didn't focus so much on understanding. So, that, so then they ran them through a battery, they ran the students through a battery of tests that tested both cognitive understanding and their, their proficiency skills, and they found that the students who were taught by methods that focused on the basics, they learned both very effectively. Far better than the than the systems that taught uh, understanding first. So this seems to be an indication. Now, these the systems, the models that they were studying at the time are not exactly identical to the to uh, what uh, teachers are being told to to uh, use today. So you have to you have to sort of infer from in in your mind that maybe there's an underlying principle here. The research does seem to point to the idea that, that it's a fool's errand to try to teach understanding in a vacuum of, uh, of knowledge and skill.
1: Just have one minute left here, and this is the, the, the thing that always amazes me. I would guess that 99% of the administrators who are running these programs now are coming up with these ideas of what to implement grew up at a time when they were not being taught this math and they reached the point they did and the level of intellect and understanding and success in their job having done it the way that they did so they can do math very well they can do it instinctively and i'm guessing the teachers that are now in the classrooms that are having to teach this new math also came up most of them with the old system where you learned your times tables you learned how to divide you learned how to multiply. And now I look at this and I go, is it difficult? It must be very difficult to teach some of this stuff if this is not the way you learned it in the first place, and you may not even be fully understanding what it is you're supposed to be teaching.
0: Uh, yeah, I think there's something to that. Uh, but I, I think also we're moving into a generation where many people in their 20s, and this would include include uh, young teachers, many people in their 20s have to, been taught in an environment where there was more and more pressure towards uh, or away from the idea of the teacher being a direct instructor. And so uh, it may well be true that many of our younger teachers uh, simply have never experienced what we would call traditional or conventional Hmm. education, that uh, they've always had uh, uh, more like a, a hybrid of the two that you might have seen in the
1: 1990s or even the 1980s. Dr. Robert Craigin, um listen, always appreciate having you on. It's always great having your insights on this because it's always uh, a, a jolt of common sense that I appreciate hearing from. Thank you for doing this again tonight. Thank you, Scott. I, I wish we could have gone on much longer. Again, I urge you to go and read today, tomorrow, the next day, this series. Not the next day. Today, tom- yeah, today tomorrow, and Saturday in the spec, this series by Joanna Frikatich on the math problem. But here's two things that I wonder about this. The first one is, again, how do you, if we see that a new system, that the marks are going down and down and down, the results are going down and down and down, surely we can come, bright people can say, why was it better then and worse now? And surely we can find some smart answers other than making it more complicated than it needs to be. The second part is, the thing I really fear Have we completely screwed up a whole generation or two of kids because they can't do math now and they're probably never going to learn to do math now? That concerns me. What do you do about these kids that have now been lost and can't do math and we're not failing kids, we're not holding them back, we're pushing them through and so they're getting to the university level, they're getting out of high school and they still can't do basic math. I think we may sadly have failed a whole lot of kids. Hopefully mom and dad have stepped in and come to the rescue and tried to teach math the proper way, the intelligent way, the basic way, so that when they go to school and they're told experience and experiment, that they actually have the foundation already. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Terry Pekoski from The Spectator is down in Chicago for the NHL draft. It has been a very unusually crazy week for drafts. We had the expansion draft last night down in Las Vegas for the Vegas Golden Knights. Tonight is the NBA draft. In case you're wondering, in case you've been keeping up with the giant soap opera that is the Ball family, Lonzo Ball went second to the Los Angeles Lakers, as we've expected him to for months and months and months. Tomorrow night is the first round of the NHL draft, and then... Saturday will be rounds two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And in the mix of all this, there are a number of Hamilton Bulldogs players who are whose names are expected to be called. What we don't know and what makes this so unique and what makes this so intriguing is that we have no idea where they're going. We have no idea that the two guys who are, right at the top of the expected name calling, at least for the Bulldogs, are Matt Strom and Mackenzie Entwistle. We have no idea where they are going to go. It makes it very intriguing if you're following along from here. We have reached Terry Pekoski in Chicago. She joins us now. Terry, thanks for doing this.
2: No problem.
1: Is it windy down there?
2: Well,
1: obviously, I would hope so. I mean, what's <laughs> well, the point of going to Chicago? Yeah, why would you go to Chicago and then go? No, it's actually very still. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I've only I've been to Chicago twice, and I got to be honest, neither time did it strike me that it was very windy. I couldn't figure out the name.
2: Really, because it, it is windy here today. It is also so sweaty and so hot.
1: It kind of feels like Las Vegas. Well, as it should. I mean, what better? to talk about hockey than Las Vegas, which was 117 degrees Fahrenheit, and then a sticky, humid Chicago for to round it off. Um, by the way, is the place buzzing for hockey right now?
2: Uh, you know what? I, I haven't seen any signs of hockey yet. Perfect. Except for the guy at the check-in desk at the hotel who was pretty excited I was here for the drops.
1: Is that right? So well, He, he was
2: going to go, but he's got to work, so...
1: Well, off the top, I was talking about the fact that there are a number, two in particular, but there are a number of people, if you've been following at all the Hamilton Bulldogs over the years, or if you're even just intrigued by the local guys, there are two, one who has a very, very famous, familiar last name, one who's kind of a newcomer. One is Matt Strome, and again, his two brothers, one of them just got traded today, he got traded to the Edmonton Oilers, Ryan Strome, and he has another brother who's hoping to make the Arizona Coyotes next year. Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's start there because if people are going to watch the draft or follow the draft, they're going to be waiting to see his name. Let me ask you right off the top because somebody said to me today, and I thought this is really interesting. They keep, we keep hearing, well, you know, the Strome family is a great hockey family and someone yeah. said, are they, there's a lot of them <laughs> and they've done well to get drafted, but they haven't yeah. really done much when they get to the NHL. So, which is true. So what will his name if anything, do you think do for him in the eyes or the ears of general managers when he comes up?
2: You know what, I, I think it'll help. I, I think it'll help um, because I think, you know, there are some challenges of not um, that, I mean, everyone talks about skating, things like that, that I think maybe he has been glossed over a little bit because of his name and because there could be some potential there and because his brothers have, have gone to to where they have. That said, uh, you know, only one of them is in the NHL so far and he is, you know, I, I don't know that he's living up to expectations. Um, and the other one has, has yet to really prove himself. So who who knows? I mean I I think there's promise. Uh Dylan in particular has put up some fantastic numbers in the OHL and I think of, of the three of them, maybe he'll be the one who um, you know, who who can really Excel at the next level, um, but I mean, bottom line, yes, I, I, I think the name will help on draft day. Uh, I don't know how much.
1: By the way, Greg just tweets in uh, Chicago is called the Windy City because of its politicians. It has nothing to do with the weather. <laughs> if if that's true, it actually makes a lot of sense, really. But anyway, with Mayor yeah. Daly and all the rest, um, well, talk- Windy by coincidence. Okay, oh yeah, well th- they're the the breath the wind from their breath carries on even after they're gone. <laughs> Uh, We're talking with Terry Pekoski, who covers the Bulldogs for the Hamilton Spectator and is down in Chicago for the draft. Um, Where do you think – there have been lots and lots of online mock drafts, as there always are, people guessing. Mm -hmm. Find – the numbers that you will find Matt Strom on these mock drafts ranges from late first round into the fourth round, which I think – Somebody from the Strom family will lose their mind if he ends up in the fourth <laughs> round. But where do you see him land? Do you have any sense at all where you would expect him to go? Do you, first of all, do you think he goes in the first round?
2: I don't think so. Okay. Um, and and I, there are a few people, I think, at this point who are who sort of holding to that. Um, I, Including I Matt Strom. Well, Matt Strom expects to go in the first round, but he might be the only one at this point. Uh, he told me the other about that his expectation is to be a first-round pick. Um, however, his agents have told him to prepare uh, to be a second or third-round pick, and I think that's a bit more appropriate for you know for, for what we've seen and for where maybe more of those mock predictions are coming in, sort of in the middle somewhere, second, you know, mid mid second to third round.
1: The other guy that is right up there that is uh, also bouncing all over, you have no idea where he's going to be. He also is sort of showing up as late, late, late in the first round into the fourth round, is a guy named Mackenzie mm-hmm. Entwistle, who, unlike Matt Strom, has no family history with the NHL, has no name recognition, has no, I mean, to the general public outside of Hamilton. Um, w- 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 how's he looking at this whole thing?
2: Uh, you know, I. <laughs> Pretty much the most easygoing kid you'll ever meet. So I think he he really is taking it in stride, and I get the sense that he's just really excited to be here. Um, would he love to be a first round classic, you know, to the NHL? Of course he would. Who wouldn't? Um, but I, I don't think he is too he's too uptight about it at this point. He's just really looking forward to the experience and and being here in Chicago, and you know, hopefully hearing his name called. And and I think I mean. I think there's a good chance it might be the first one that we hear when it comes to the Bulldogs. Um, everyone loves this kid. I, he, he, I mean, he's personality-wise, I think that makes a good impression on general managers. But uh, on the ice, um, it's you know, few few people have bad things to say about him. Uh, and I think that consistency and he's just a well-rounded player. Right? I think that's going to make an impact me. Um, will probably affect his standing. well
1: and he has played uh for Canada twice I believe internationally um, and both times isn't uh, he's not necessarily the best player on the Hamilton bulldogs to an to, uh, if you're just going to a game and you watch you wouldn't necessarily say he's the best player in the bulldogs but when he went to those mm-hmm. two international tournaments he was among the very best players on that team Canada team he really stepped up when he was put on the spot
2: well yeah what well, you might see there, he got a bit more opportunity in international games with the Bulldogs because of the depth that they had um, on forward and he was sick for a bit of the season too but he spent most of the year on the third line, which meant he was playing fewer minutes he wasn't playing on the power play at all um, and, and that's a big part of the reason why his numbers maybe weren't fantastic this year uh, and again he was, I mean, he was playing with Mono for a while so I, I think that you know, that plays a role and that's also why you see a guy like Matt Strome have the numbers that he has because he, you know, he played on the power play all the time, the first unit. Um, he was playing with Nikki Petty and Matt Love, who were both, you know, super fast and had opportunities to set him up and he could find them. And I think, you know, given those dynamics that helps to explain you know a a bit about the numbers um and then when you put McKenzie with some you know higher caliber players in international play that's when he's really finishing and putting up um more points
1: there are other players on the Hamilton Bulldogs that people can watch for but we don't we only have time I just want to talk about one other guy because he is also a local guy and this Mm -hmm. is one of the really interesting stories in maybe the whole draft there is a reasonable chance i would suggest that riley webb who's from stony creek doesn't get drafted but there is an equal chance i would suggest that he does get drafted and the part about this that's so interesting is because he's been injured for basically almost all of the two years that he's been in junior hockey very few people know almost anything about this guy
2: yeah i mean this, this is the one that i'm most excited to see what happens with um he's played 20 games over the last two seasons but when he has played, he's really good. So I think that I mean if you're a scout, you're gonna you're gonna see him and you're gonna think there's this guy who's flying under the radar, he could be a superstar. Maybe we pick him up later, you know, later in the draft and, and just take a chance and see if he you know, he is the guy we've seen in those twenty games, those limited viewings, or you know, maybe it's not, but if you take him in the sixth or seventh round doesn't even doesn't matter. Um yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's interesting. I was talking to Steve Staios earlier this week, and he said he's been getting calls about him. He was the first person that came up when I asked him if he thinks there's going to be any surprises this weekend. So I would say that's definitely one to keep, uh, keep an eye on.
1: Well, the thing about him is that if you play a lot of games and you get scouted a lot, scouts mm-hmm. get to know what your strengths are. But the other thing is they also get to know what your flaws are. And the one thing yeah. about Riley Webb that makes him so intriguing, I would think, to a lot of scouts is, you see, you've seen him so little that really he, you're not concentrating on the flaws or the weaknesses in his game. He's basically a blank slate that you can imagine him to be whatever you want him to be.
2: Well, and to be honest, I mean, even in the, the limited situations he's been in, he, he hasn't really screwed up. Um, right. No, he's been very good. And even, and these are not just, you know, normal game situations. He did it, played a lot of time in the playoffs in, you know, high pressure scenarios. Um, you know, when the Bulldogs were trying to hang on to a leap in the game, on penalties. And he played really well. And I think it says a lot that, uh, you know, a guy who has missed so much time can step sort of seamlessly into the lineup like that at the end of the season when everyone's kind of come together and they're used to playing with one another. Um, that says a lot about him as a player.
1: I had Steve Steos on here yesterday uh, talking not about the expansion, about this draft specifically. It was more about the experience of being one of the guys who was taken in an expansion draft. He was drafted by Atlanta last time when the Thrasher started. But okay. the one thing I asked him about the Bulldogs was if it means anything to the team, not, not as a personal thing. He likes these kids. He wants them to do well as people. But to the Bulldogs franchise, does it mean anything? Does it matter if they have guys get taken and get taken high? And he sort of poo-pooed that idea. Do you buy that, or do you think that for the Bulldogs organization, not only to sell tickets, but also to sell them as a place to come to develop as a player for players they want to lure into Hamilton, do you think yeah. that how they do really matters tomorrow?
2: yeah <laughs> I don't buy that at all. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's hugely important for any junior franchise to have guys drafted because it shows that the you know that the coaches and the staff are doing their jobs and developing players, and it yeah, exactly as you said, it makes it an appealing place for young players and families to go and and often that's important. I mean, you look at Flint a couple of years ago when the dynamics were so bad and players didn't want to go there um it's the opposite with a place like london where they're pumping out draft picks and you've got guys who are bailing on ncaa commitments to go and play there so i i think it can make a very big difference um in terms of you know the franchise's appeal and ultimately its success
1: we will uh, let you get to the chicago experience have you been able to dive into any deep dish pizza yet
2: not yet, but I am starving, so I'm going to go do that right now.
1: Will it be that, or will it be the Billy Goat Tavern? I might do both. Yeah. The Billy Goat Tavern, for those who don't know what that is, if you ever watched old Saturday Night Live, and it was that skit with John Belushi, cheeseburger, 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 <laughs> that one, that, that's based on a real place. It's called the Billy Goat Tavern in, in Chicago, and it actually exists, and you go in there, and you get a cheeseburger, period. So if you're, gonna, if you're hungry for a cheeseburger, Terry, there's where you go.
2: All right, pizza first, cheeseburger
1: second. Wash it down. Yeah, wash the pizza down with a good cheeseburger. Terry <laughs> Pekoski in Chicago, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: Thanks, Scott. Enjoy
1: the draft tomorrow. Uh, we you- hope that there are some Bulldogs called nice and early. I, I suspect that all the Bulldogs that get called, all the Hamilton Bulldogs and the local guys too, a local guy, Riley, uh, will be out on Saturday. I don't think we're going to see anybody in the first round. Let me tell you a funny story, though, completely off topic. Well, back to the Billy Goat Tavern. Uh, some f- people I know who actually used to work in the, um, in the bu- with the Bulldogs when they were an AHL team were in Chicago because the Bulldogs used to play against the Chicago Wolves. And so three of them <laughs> went to the Billy Goat Tavern one day, at, either before the game or after the game, and they line up, and it was kind of like the, su- the Soup Nazi skit in Seinfeld where you line up and you walk up and you just order what you want to order. But it's everybody orders a cheeseburger. But on top of the the like up higher, there is an actual menu of other things, but nobody gets them. All they ever get is a cheeseburger. And so person number one walks up and he says, Yeah, I'll have a cheeseburger. And the guy goes, Cheeseburger. And then person number two, the true story. Person number two walks up and says, I'll have a cheeseburger and it's cheeseburger. And person number three, who's it's a very funny story anyway, uh, walks up and goes, Yes, I think I'll have a grilled cheese sandwich. They goes, cheeseburger. He goes, no, 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 grilled cheese sandwich. He goes, no, 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 cheeseburger. And they went back and forth two or three times, and finally the other two people who were with him went, no, just get the stupid cheeseburger. You don't get anything. It, it doesn't matter. If it says you could get a Waldorf salad, you get the cheeseburger. But if you're in Chicago, Billy Goat Tavern, worth your while, it is a piece of Chicago history. The draft, by the way, in case you're interested, tomorrow evening, is the first round. As I say, unlikely that you will see any Hamilton Bulldogs players go in the first round. Saturday, rounds two through seven, that is where you will see them, especially early in the draft on Saturday. Second round, third round, you could see two, maybe three Hamilton Bulldogs players go in those early rounds. We will be waiting to find out.
0: The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.